Good morning. How are y'all? Good? All right. Very nice. It's nice to be here. Nice to see you. Uh, if I haven't met you, my name's Nick. I'm uh, one of the elders here and uh, lead pastor. Happy to be called um, by the Lord and by this church to bring you his word uh, week in and week out. So it's a great blessing. Ian, thank you for sharing. Uh, you always manage to uh, kind of say what I personally need to hear. So uh, I appreciate that. I don't know how many of you guys come in sometimes feeling tired or feeling like God doesn't hear your prayers, feeling feeling like you're just fed up with trials or whatever it might be. But that's kind of where I've been at uh, lately, and I, uh, I really appreciated that. Um, guys, you can... Oh, you know, let me... for Just a little peer pressure here real quick. Gentlemen, I, if you have not... I have the list, okay? So I know those of you in this room who, who, who are not coming on, on the men's camping trip, and I know those of you that, that are. And... and yeah, yeah. And I, I assume, I'm just going to assume, you know, we're, we're supposed to um, we're supposed to give grace and assume the best, right? I'm going to assume there's a good reason for those that aren't coming. But man, I'll tell you something, I, I wish that you would come. If, if, if you're available, uh, that you know, this next weekend, please consider it. Um, I can just speak from the perspective of like my... You know, when I led college ministry and things, there were guys that would define their entrance into the ministry, like when it really became their own kind of thing, by the trip that they went on. You know, when they actually got to know each other, when we when we actually started like talking, hanging out, doing life. They're like, oh yeah, that's when like I really kind of got plugged in or whatever. And so, I know that's college, but at the same time, you know, as a community here of brothers, I mean, we can come in week in and week out, do our little thing, and then head for the door, whatever it is. And I just would love to do life. And I know it's just maybe 24 hours, maybe a little bit more, 36 hours, whatever, but uh, maybe those are high expectations I have. But nonetheless, even a few hours outside of regular you know, routine, getting to know one another and, and, and pressing into the Lord together is huge. So uh, please consider it, okay? All right, peer pressure, uh, dial it down. Uh, let's go into uh, Luke. Now, chapter 2, uh, verse 25 is where we're at. We're going to read down through verse 38. If you need a Bible, uh, these gentlemen here, happy to bring one for you. If you don't own one, please keep it. It's our gift to you. If you want to give it to a neighbor, co-worker, even better. Um, Luke 2, chapter, or I'm sorry, Luke chapter 2, verse 25 through 38 is where we're going to be. <laughs> We'll read it, we'll pray, and we'll get moving. Okay. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms, blessed God, and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. 
For my eyes have seen your salvation that you've prepared in the presence of all peoples. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Let's pray. There's a lot here, Lord. And I'm praying right now that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would focus us in on those few things that you'd be speaking to this congregation. In particular, Jesus, you know I have two things in mind. And I'm praying that you'd accomplish. And that is that if there are some in this room who come in, feeling as if on the outside, feeling like they don't belong in the assembly of the saints, feeling like they're outside the line, looking in. God, my prayer for them is that in Christ, because of what you have done, they would be brought in this morning. They would see they belong in the assembly of the saints that's also an assembly of sinners. Washed in your blood. My prayers for those also that are on the inside. And they're proud about it. They feel like they've been doing it all right. They've been raised in the church. They know all the right things. comfortable with their Christianity that's just lukewarm at best. God, my prayer is for for those in that place. You'd wake them up. You'd show them that perhaps even though they think they're inside, they're on the outside and you'd show them the way back in. We know, Jesus, that you come so that the blind can see and and those that see realize that they're blind. So I'm praying that all of us would, would gather together in our common blindness in the flesh in our fallen nature and would say, Jesus, You're the only one who can open our eyes and help us to see. 
Would you do that with our time, God, and, and abundantly more than I could even think to ask? I want to just open up my preparation, God, to you. I just want to open up the windows in this manuscript and say, Holy Spirit, breathe. Holy Spirit, blow. If there are things you want to do different than what I've prepared, your will be done, not mine. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I got a lot for us here this morning, but let me let me begin by um, pointing out something for us. Simeon, in our text, makes plain a profound fact immediately. Uh, namely, that to see Jesus is to see the Lord's salvation. Right? Did, did, you, did you catch that? That when He comes upon the infant Christ, He's, he's coming into the temple in the Holy Spirit. It says the Spirit leads Him in there. He, he, he gets His hands on Jesus. It's as if He lifts Him up. I'm almost, forgive me, I'm picturing almost like a Lion King moment, you know? Like, no way! He, he, he lifts Him up, blesses Him, and He says, Now my eyes have seen your God your salvation because I've seen Him. And this is our, our prayer, right, for co-workers, neighbors, everyone in this city, unbelievers in this room, right, that they would see with us, by God's grace, in Jesus Christ, the Lord's salvation. It's my prayer that um, the sermon would be used to that end. Immediately upon seeing Him as, as the Lord's salvation, immediately upon discerning in Jesus the salvation of God, we have to face an interesting fact. And that is that God's salvation is never what we would expect. Never. It's always this kind of surprise uh, to us because partly probably we're, we're in the flesh, we're fallen, and partly because God is so far above us and His ways are inscrutable. But when we see in Jesus the salvation of God, it always comes as a surprise. There are things there that we would not expect. In the case of our text, I'm going to bring out two. Two seemingly paradoxical surprises that present themselves to us. And investigating these two are going to take up most of our, all of our time this morning. I'm going to spend most of my time on the first, and then we'll just close with the second. But let me put these surprises before you. First, in verses 29 through 32, Simeon is blessing God, right, with this hymn. And we are surprised to find that the Lord's salvation as revealed in Jesus is much broader, much broader than first expected. But then, I said these are paradoxical surprises here because as we keep reading in verses 33 to 35, Simeon turns now to bless Mary and Joseph, although it's debatable whether this is the kind of blessing you would want. Uh, we are surprised as we look into this to find that the Lord's salvation, 
as revealed in Jesus, is actually also much narrower than first expected. It's much broader than first expected and much narrower than first expected. Both come as a surprise to us if we've been trekking with the story of Israel through the Old Testament. If I could hopefully set us up for success here with a summary statement, I think I put it there as the big idea on your handout. Um, you, could, you could put it this way. This basically sums up what we're going to look at. With the coming of Christ, God's plan of salvation simultaneously broadens to include more than ethnic Israel, verses 29 to 32 and narrows to include less than ethnic Israel, verses 33 and 35. Broad, narrow, one and the same time. Let's take the first one, verses 29 through 32, the blessing of God, Simeon's hymn, a broad salvation. While there are many things that we could bring out from the hymn Simeon sings over this child, I want to draw our attention particularly to the two plural nouns, okay, in his song there. In verse 31, you have peoples. This is being prepared in the presence of the peoples, right? And then, in verse 32, this Christ is a light, this salvation, it's a light of revelation unto the Gentiles. Peoples, Gentiles. Two plural nouns. That's my focus for this point. Because here in Luke's Gospel, this is actually the first clear indication of the universal reach that this Savior is going to have. This first indication here in Luke's Gospel that Jesus is not just some national prodigy, He's not just come to redeem Israel. He's come for the world. This is where it becomes clear for the first time in Luke. And so I wanted to focus here. Now, I think, I don't know, we have any ethnic Israelites in this room? I I actually don't know. Probably not, I assumed. So, we are in this room all Gentiles, right? And we are here because we know we've been grafted in by Jesus into the covenant people of God. So, seeing peoples and Gentiles, the plural nouns in Simeon's hymn, might not come as a surprise to us. We might revel in it. We ought to revel in it. I mean, those plural nouns are a welcome mat in front of the kingdom of God to to, to scum and dirt and dogs like us. We revel in it, but we... Might not now, with the gospel two millennia strong, be surprised by it, right? Before the Jews of Jesus' day, though the law and the prophets thoroughly should have prepared them for this moment, for this declaration of the broadening contours of God's salvation, for the Jew in Jesus' day, this would have seemed, this this declaration by Simeon would have seemed like high scandal. Like high scandal. Let me read you something from some Jewish literature came a little bit later, but perhaps captures some of the sentiment that was alive there in Jesus' day. This is what they wrote. 
as the sacred food was intended not for the dogs. Dogs were considered unclean animals, not man's best friend at that point. The Torah was intended to be given not to the Gentiles. Did you hear me on that? As the food was intended not for the dogs, the Torah was intended to be given not to the Gentiles. You wouldn't give sacred food to the unclean animals, and we won't give God's law to unclean Gentiles. And now Simeon comes, and he says, (laughs) not just the Torah for the Gentiles, but the Christ, the Messiah for the Gentiles as well. (laughs) That is high scandal. That's a surprise. Now, when we consider the ceremonial context that stands behind Simeon's hymn, namely what we looked at kind of yesterday, verses 21 through 24, and then there in verse 27, there's this ceremonial context. When we look at this for a moment, we're actually better positioned to perceive the surprise that this would have been, this announcement of of Simeon would have been for the Jewish people. Go with me here for a moment. Let's, let's remember. As we saw last week, Joseph and Mary, they've come to the temple, right, in Jerusalem to participate in these various ceremonies or customs of the law, as you see there in verse 27. And last week we noted three of them. You've got the circumcision, right, of the, of the, the, the male child in Israel. You've got the purification of a woman after childbirth. And then you have the consecration of the firstborn male in Israel. All these ceremonies are going on. Now, last week I gave various reasons for some of those ceremonies being given by God to the people of Israel. Today, for our purposes, here's what's, here's what's interesting to note. God gives these ceremonies... He gives these customs of the law to Israel to set them apart from the Gentiles. Okay? To, 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 to make them holy, make them stand off in a way from the nations as His covenant people. Let me read to you from Exodus 19. Verses 4 through 6. This is right after God brings them out of Egypt and He's talking about what He's going to do with them and why. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey My voice and keep My covenant, you shall be My treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is Mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In other words, in other words, hear this. I feel like I don't hear it as much back here. I'm distracted by that. Do you hear it now? You still hear it? Did we do the battery or something? Is it bothering anybody else or is it just me that feels like there's like a fly buzzing in my ear as I'm talking? All right, it's just me. Then I'll pull back here maybe and I'll feel better if I don't hear it from the speakers. Um... So, okay, where was I? Okay, here's what's happening. This is weird too, but hey. Okay, my people out there. Um, he's, pulling, he's pulling Israel out of Egypt, right? 
He's pulling them out of the nations, if you will. He's giving them His law. He's about to do that, Exodus 20. He's drawing them to Sinai, giving them this law, these ceremonies, and other things that they're going to do. And all of this, He says, is so that you will be a holy nation. You will be a nation set apart from all the other nations. So he's giving them these ceremonies like circumcision, like purification, like consecration of the firstborn and things like that to set them apart. So people will look in and go, whoa, they're different. They're different. But, then in our text, this is what's so awesome. It is precisely as the newborn Christ and his family are participating in these exclusive rituals, these exclusive ceremonies, these ceremonies that set them apart from the other nations. It's in this moment, as Jesus and his family partaking of these things, that Simeon comes in and says, the salvation of Yahweh, not just for Israel, for the world. Exclusivity is giving way in Jesus to inclusivity. Exclusion, now inclusion. Israel, we come to find, has been set apart from the nations for the sake of the nations. And they lost sight of this, right? Which is why they're going, Torah, not for them. No way. They're unclean. They missed the very point of all of this, which is what we're going to look at here. This text is actually part of a much bigger dynamic that's been developed in all of Scripture. And I I want to sit on it for a moment with you. Um, You could sum this dynamic up with three words. Exclusion for inclusion. It's a dynamic that's been present from the very beginning because it's kind of connected to the very nature of God as He relates to His creation. Here's what I mean. God is holy, right? And He is just. He is pure. There's none like Him. He dwells in unapproachable light, right? Therefore, in many ways, we must be excluded from His presence, right? What are we doing in His presence? No way! But... God is also loving, gracious, kind. And so He desperately wants His creation in His presence. Inclusion. There's this exclusion for inclusion dynamic that we're going to see. It'll make more sense as we go. It's been present from the very beginning. It's even pictured already. Perhaps this will help you with Adam in the garden. I go here a lot to emphasize the coherent unity of the narrative of Scripture and the plan of God and salvation. But here's what you see in Adam. What do you have in the Garden of Eden? You have this exclusive kind of plot of land set apart from all the others, right? That's what you get in Genesis 2. There's this, there's this land that God puts man in that's kind of like the sanctuary of his presence. It's kind of the pre-temple temple if you will, where God dwells with man. And this this cultivated land has been set apart from the uncultivated, unfilled earth out there. But here's the question. Here's the question. Was, Was that 
was the extremities of the earth just kind of excluded to the neglect, you know, and, and forsaking all of that? Was there just kind of this original holy huddle going on that God creates in Eden and we're just going to kind of close our eyes and hang out together? No way. That area in Eden was set apart. It was, it was exclusive and the rest was excluded. But the ultimate goal, right, was inclusion. The ultimate goal was that Adam, through cultivating the earth and, and having dominion and, and him and Eve bearing fruit, multiplying, filling the earth, would take the image of God, take that sanctuary, Edenic presence of God and bring it out. So there's this exclude, there's this kind of exclusion that's moving towards a final inclusion, which is where Revelation takes us, right? The whole earth is now the temple of God. That's where the story was going. But it begins, interestingly, with exclusion, moving towards inclusion. Now, with Israel, after Adam's sin, Due to um, the persistence of God's grace, the same dynamic continues. Okay? God pulls out from fallen mankind one man, Abraham, right? One man. And what does he do? He, 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 he makes from him a nation that we just saw set apart from all the others. It would seem like this is unfair. He's just excluding everyone else here and bringing in just this one, this one nation and making them the kingdom of priests, them a holy nation. But what was his purpose in doing that? Why did he exclude the others? Was it so that he could kind of build up this one little crew and forget them? No way. No way. It was always exclusion for an ultimate inclusion. I got I got to show that I'm holy, but I will show that I am gracious. It is true that all of these ceremonies, these customs of the law, dealing with the cleanness and uncleanness, morality and immorality, all this stuff was to set Israel apart from the Gentiles. But, in so doing, God was at the same time setting them up as a theater unto the nations. Do you hear me on that? Set apart from the nations, set up as a theater unto the nations. Now, this is what Simeon means when he says in verse 30. Check this out. My eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all the peoples. This salvation, this salvation that's coming in this Son has been prepared through the Old Testament, through all the exclusion kind of stuff. It's been prepared in the presence of all the peoples. In other words, God has set this up so that there would be an audience from the very beginning looking in upon the theater that is Israel. The nations were to look in and discern things like what, what God is like, what man is like, and where redemption, where salvation could be found. 
It was Israel's job. They were commissioned by God, as it were, to keep in the world's consciousness, to kind of keep retelling the ancient story of creation, fall, and coming redemption. It was to keep, keep this before the nations. They weren't pulled away to the exclusion of them merely. They were being set up to be a theater so that the nations could eventually come in. They showed God's holiness. They showed God's grace. They were not set apart by God to be superior to the nations, but to be the servants of the nations. Okay? I know this is a lot of theology for a moment, but hopefully it'll, it'll make your devotions in the Old Testament come alive. That's my prayer. <laughs> let, me give you, let me give you an example. Let me give you evidence of what I'm talking about here by just simply considering the ceremony of circumcision. This was amazing. I had never seen this before, to be honest with you. I would never really looked into the context or looked at it through this lens. Think about this with me. When we think of circumcision in the Old Testament, right, it was given to Abraham as this, like, the, kind of the fundamental mark of the covenant people of God. This is it. You're either in or you're out. If you have this mark, you're in. If you don't, goodbye. You're outside the lines. This is the dividing line in Israel and, and what divides them ultimately from the nations. You have the Abrahamic covenant mark or not. It's why even in Ephesians 2, as we'll see, you could refer to Jews simply as the circumcision. Jews are the circumcision. And Gentiles are the uncircumcision. That's how fundamental circumcision is. And so I want to see at this fundamental point, am I seeing exclusion for inclusion here or is this just exclusion? Get the nations out. Watch this. This is amazing. We might initially think, wow, God's just drawing a hard line here. Not so fast. When we look at the initiation of this ceremony with Abraham, we actually see, we actually get a completely different sense of the whole thing. I wonder if you noticed this before. Circumcision was given to Abraham, Genesis 17. Immediately following what? Immediately following God's covenant promise to him that he shall be what? A father of a multitude of nations. Genesis 17.4. It's when God changes Abram's name, exalted father, to Abraham, father of a multitude. And in that context, immediately following this covenant promise, God says, what is going to be the sign of that covenant? That I'm going to make you a father of a multitude of nations. He said, I know. Circumcision. Circumcision. So was circumcision a line that divided Israel from the nations, that excluded the nations from coming in in some sense? Yes. But here's the most amazing thing. The very mark of exclusivity was at the same time a sign and a seal of a divine promise that that line itself would broaden out and encompass the nations. 
that God was going to make from Abraham not just not just uh, 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 physical offspring, but spiritual offspring. Those born in Isaac, those born of the promise, those born whether blood Jew or not, tied in to the Jewish covenant by virtue of faith in Jesus Christ. So there is, there is so much going on here. And now you can maybe get just the, the, the horror of what Israel did with circumcision in making it their reason to boast against the Gentiles when it, when it itself was a very reminder to them that God was going to bring in the Gentiles. Now, salvation, as it was promised to and prepared for by Israel, in the presence of the nations, arrives in Jesus Christ. All the preparations, all the promises, all this stuff arrives now in the person of Jesus Christ. The theater, the theater has served its purpose. It's provided a stage. It's provided an audience. Stage Israel. That's why this, 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 this salvation in Jesus is a, is a light and a glory for Israel. The stage is Israel. But the audience is the Gentiles. That's why it's a light of revelation unto the Gentiles. There's a stage now. There's an audience now. And now the star of the show arrives. And He's come. He's come to fulfill Israel's mission. To fulfill this concept, this idea of exclusion for the sake of an ultimate inclusion. Here's what I mean. Jesus is going to fulfill both sides of this dynamic. Right? That's what He's going to do. Is there anyone more exclusive than Jesus? Is there anyone more set apart, more holy, more pure? No. He comes in as, as God in the flesh. He is the Holy One of Israel. He is ultimately set apart. There is no way we're crossing over to where He is at. And yet, and yet, He comes to include. Right? Somehow, this Jesus comes and, 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 and He is able in the midst of His exclusivity as the Son of God, He is able to make prostitutes feel comfortable and loved in His arms. He calls them out of their sin. You better, you better believe it. Go and sin no more. But for some reason, they feel included here. And we know where He's headed. He's headed to the cross, which is where the only one who ever deserved to be included into the community of God, God's presence, is excluded so that sinners, right, Jew and Gentile alike, can come running in. Exclusion for the sake of inclusion. God is holy. God is just. He is set apart. And yet He is gracious and wants everyone in. And Jesus gives Himself on the cross to fulfill both sides of this. Ephesians 2, 11-13. Hear this over your life. Remember, 
that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, excluded. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Verse 13, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Do you hear that? He has come to fulfill Israel's mission. All the whatever circumcision pictured and the fathering of nations, bringing them in. He is now doing it. We who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. It's as if the Trinity itself has opened up. Because Jesus was kicked out on that cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We now are baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We are brought into the triune community. By His blood. So let me ask you something. Do you feel, do you feel sometimes like an outsider because you don't have all the external marks? What it means to be a Christian, right? I don't have all the external marks, and different churches make different marks their standard, right? You don't have a Jesus fish on your car. Or a cross. Some of the hipster churches, you don't have a cross tattooed on your wrist. You don't know all the right verses. You barely could stumble out John 3.16. You don't know all the right Christian things to say at all the right moments. You're not always smiling. Sometimes life just sucks and it's hard. For you, and you're not just humming amazing grace. Or sometimes in your car, I thought about this because this is me to be honest with you. You turn on K Love and you go, it's not always positive, encouraging. Sometimes it's just like painful and annoying. (laughs) You know? I love it, don't get me wrong, but I am selective, you know? I don't listen to much secular music, but I would rather have silence sometimes than some of the songs that come on. So I love a lot of them, don't get me wrong. But sometimes, listen, I am not going to. And it, yeah. So I don't have the, 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 the external marks. Maybe you come into church like I prayed at the beginning and you just feel like an outsider. You just feel like they're all within the line and here I am on the outside. And as long as I don't open my mouth, people won't get that I'm outside the line. I look like I belong, but I know I don't. This text, Ephesians 2, that I just read, but we're following through this idea of exclusion for inclusion. It says that Jesus, it's as if in this room, if that's where you're at, it's as if Jesus dips his finger in the red of his own blood and uses that to draw a line into your great surprise. He includes you in the circle. He includes you, He includes me within the compass of that circle. We have been brought in. And this is why this is important. I mean, 
Don't we always need to keep this reality before us? We don't belong here. Exclusion. And yet we belong here. Inclusion. The moment you lose either of those, the whole gospel just kind of deflates, right? Now, I want to turn the discussion on ourselves even more at this point because Christ gives this same mission to the church. The same mission of exclusion for the sake of inclusion. He gives it to the church. I wonder if you're familiar with the fact that Peter will actually apply uh, Exodus 19, 5-6, which I read, to the church in Jesus Christ now. We're carrying on this mission. This is what he says, 1 Peter 2, verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. He's talking to Gentiles, guys. This is crazy stuff. You now, all that Israel stood for is being applied to the nations as they are in Christ. He is the fulfillment of Israel's mission and we in Him, by His Spirit, carry out that mission to the world. And are we exclusive? Are, is the world in some sense excluded from us? Yes. It better be the case that we are set apart and different, right? We are a holy nation. We are His chosen people. We are set apart in our, in our, in our hearts and our minds and our words and our deeds. We are different. But it is exclusion for the sake of inclusion because you get there. Listen, we're not just holy huddling it over here. We are proclaiming into the darkness about the One who's called us out and into His light. We are proclaiming, here is where you will find life. Exclusion, yes, but for the sake of inclusion. Now this, historically, this is so hard. This has been so hard for the church to maintain. So hard, and even more so probably in our day. I mean, every, every age is hard. Ours is especially hard with culture pressing in, right? And then you're forced to say, Where am I, what am I going to do with this? And whole churches are falling off on either side of this dynamic, right? There are some who go hyper-exclusive. They come over here and they stiff-arm the culture. Right? We, 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 we don't want anything to do with it. We pull away from the culture. But they miss, they miss this, this central fact, the central mission of the church, that the church is not, is not to be, hear me, a city in the hills. It should be a city on a hill. You know the difference, right? You got the monks who are saying, "Let's go build a city in the hills." I don't want to be. I don't want to be in all this, you know, this heathen stuff. Let's get out there in the hills and have our own little counterculture. It'll be great. And Jesus says, "No, that is not how this works. No hyper exclusivity here. I have I have called you to be holy, set apart, but set up." on a hill where yes, you are still different. Yes, you are still set apart. But you are within view of the nations. They all can look and see what God and what man and what salvation in Christ is like. 
were more kind of like a lighthouse, right? Shining, you know, out into the darkness where those lost at sea find their way home. Exclusion for the sake of inclusion. So can I just say it? This might mean you're going to have to call in people you don't like. This might mean you're going you're to invite and draw that circle around people you wouldn't normally hang out with. That's the whole issue with the Jews, right? What we see Jesus dealing with. I don't want to hang out with the Samaritans or the, the nation. They're our enemies. Are you kidding me? And then you read certain Psalms and in the prophets, like God is calling Babylon and Assyria and Egypt His people. And you're going, ooh, my, my blood just boils at the thought. They're our enemies. I don't like them. They say, draw the circle around them, man. Draw the circle around. I didn't exclude you from the nations <laughs> to be superior, but to be their servants. And the time is coming. We're broadening this thing out. They're coming in. It's going gonna, it's gonna to hurt sometimes to draw the circle around people you don't like. But you got to do it. Jesus is calling us to open our arms. Now, some churches fall off on the other side, right? And individuals and things. They go hyper-inclusive, you might say. Not stiff-arming the culture. Now we're kind of limp-wristing the culture, if you will. We kind of embrace it wholesale. You have those people that when the cultural pressures kind of come in, they go, uh, well, Jesus is love, so we'll embrace it. Okay. All right, the culture's going this way with homosexuality or whatever it is. Okay, Jesus is love. We'll go there. We'll go there. But I will tell you something. Any love, hear me, any love that foregoes truth, any love that foregoes truth is hate in disguise. Hear me on that? If we don't call them out of sin, we let them die in it. See, this is why the church has to maintain both. If we're hyper-exclusive, we're good to no one. We might be pure and holy, but we're not reaching anybody. But if we're over here and all we are is inclusive, come on, we got a big group hug, then we're also no good to anybody. We have to somehow maintain both. And if I could just say it, this might mean saying the hard word and losing that friend or losing that job. It doesn't always have to mean that, but there comes a point where discernment, prayer, and the Spirit... I feel like in love, i got to say it. Just gotta, you're outside the line, man. Jesus is not in this thing. We're not okay just saying, come on in. Forgo truth for the sake of love. No way. We want to be both. What this world, what this world desperately needs from us, Mercy Hill, is that we would actually maintain that kind of exclusion for inclusion love of Jesus. That's what this world needs from us. They don't need us to pull away. They don't need us to embrace wholesale. They need us to be like Jesus. He didn't stiff arm the culture, right? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He didn't stiff arm. He's getting in the mess, right? But he also didn't limp wrist the culture either. Everywhere he went, what was his call? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I'm here because I love you, but there are some significant things we have to deal with. 
He loves them in truth. He loves them to death. That's where I want to be. Let's move. Uh, I've got a few more minutes for the, the final point. A narrow salvation. This salvation, verses 33 through 35, we find is actually narrower than we first expected. It's broader than we first expected. It is narrower than we first expected. There's another surprise here. It's as if uh, before there could be any premature celebration of, of this kind of universal reach of the Messiah, as Simeon's kind of saying, this child is going to go for the world, man. He kind of dials it down a moment and says, wait a minute, I've got to say something else. He brings in these sobering words as he, as he addresses Joseph and Mary, verse 33 and through 35. Or I guess verse 34. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, speaking to Mary there, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So he goes on and he says, Simeon here says, this is going to be awesome, but man, it's going to hurt. It's going to cut you up inside to watch what's going on. The Messiah isn't just going to march into victory. The nations aren't just going to happily submit to His reign of redemption. He's going to be opposed. He's going to be rejected. We know He's going to be killed. And even within Israel itself, and here was the surprise, some are going to rise with Him. He's going to cause some to rise. But others, they're going to fall. He's going to be that cornerstone upon which some will be built up. And he's going to be that stumbling stone over which some will fall to their own destruction. The Christ, it was assumed, was going to deliver the nation, right, from its years of foreign oppression, and Rome and other, other nations. And that the Christ was going to kind of set them up at the head, Israel up at the head of the nations. We're going to be the head of the nations. The nations are going to bow to us. This is going to be great. But now Simeon, again, first time in Luke's Gospel, indicates here something else. And that is that this Messiah has not just come to deliver the nation, He's come to divide it. And here we have what Paul would refer to elsewhere, like when he talks in Romans 9, 6, he says, Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Meaning, meaning, this is tough theology to pack in the last five minutes, but meaning, there are some who are circumcised in the flesh, Jews by ethnicity, that are not circumcised in the heart by the Spirit. They're not the real thing. They're not the child of promise. They have the external marks, but they don't have the internal reality. And everywhere Jesus goes, he, he's, it's as if He's kind of parting the sheep from the goats within Israel itself. The real from the, from the, the false. 
John the Baptist sets the wedge in place, okay? It's as if John the Baptist kind of sets this wedge for the Messiah when he comes to the Jews and he says things like this in Luke 3, 8 through 9. He says, Do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. It's not enough. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid at the root of the trees. You got a sword in Simeon. Now you got an axe going on. What is this? There's division going on within Israel by the deliverer, surprisingly enough. John the Baptist sets the wedge. Jesus comes in. Behind him, with every word, with every deed, it's as if he kind of drives that wedge all the way down to the bottom until you read in Luke 19, 47, 48. He's he's about to die. He's in Jerusalem. This is it. This is the end of his life. Here's what you see. Israel is just dividing. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. Leaders in in, in Israel, kill him. Verse 48, but they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. You have some over here who can't stand him. He's not doing what they wanted. He's not the Messiah they hoped for. Get rid of him. He's getting in the way of our podium. And then you have others over here who every word he says, they're just hanging on it. He is our hope. Two groups. Two groups. Jesus dividing. One loving. One in a few days will kill. We'll close with this. Jesus has a way, right, of of, of exposing what's going on inside of man and woman. That's what Simeon even says. He's come to kind of reveal the inner thoughts of our hearts. Jesus has this way of exposing what's going on inside of us. There's just no neutral way to respond to His claims and His actions. We're either going to love Him, fall down at His feet and worship, or we're going to hate Him and want Him out. But there's no neutral ground. He's not interested in the parade of empty religion. He doesn't care about our skin. Here's the interesting thing. In in my first heading there, broad salvation, the, the, the issue was, I don't have the marks. Am I still in? Can I still be in without the marks? Now, now the question is, I have all the marks. I got the, the goods. All the external stuff is lined up. But am I in? He's exposing what's going on inside the heart, beneath the parade and all the other stuff we can do. He knows what's going on there. He knows if the Spirit's at work there or if this is all just a show. We might know the right verses. We might know the right things. We might know how to march in the Christian parade. But does Jesus have our hearts, right? Are we hanging on His every word? I don't have much time. 
to deal with Simeon and Anna, obviously. But they're brought in, I think. One of the ways you could bring them in is to see them as examples of these kinds of people. The kind of people that are going to cling, that are going to hang on Jesus' words. The kind of people that we want to be like. That when the heart's exposed, they go, wow, that person loves Jesus. That's what they kind of represent for us. They're these people that have just given it all for this. I mean, that's Simeon, right? He's old man. Just, I'm waiting for the consolation of Israel. Anna, same thing. I'm waiting for, what does it say? The redemption of Jerusalem. I'm hanging on God's words. I mean, she's, she's like 84, it says, and there's even debate if she's older or not. She's been a widow. She's been God's husband all those years. I'm just fasting and praying and waiting and hanging on your words. They've given up with the world and all of its show. Jesus has their hearts. And so the question for us is, does He have ours? Are we hanging with them on His words? Let's pray. God, thank You for the amazing way that You hold in balance two incredibly important realities. That we are both excluded from Your presence in light of your justice and holiness, we ought to be we ought to be a thousand, a million, light years away. And yet, because of Jesus, we've also been included in. And there's nowhere else we should be, but right there at your feet, hanging on your words. Thank you for the gospel that comforts the broken man and breaks the the hard man and saves both of them. In Jesus' name.